Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Toil on the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Those are the first seven verses of Psalm 37, which first 18 verses of which are the psalm appointed for today, Thursday, December the 8th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We're continuing our look at uh, the prophecy of Amos in the ninth chapter, the first 10 verses. We're also in the book of the Revelation, chapter 2, verses 8 to 17, which are two different letters to the churches. And then finally, in the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 23, verses 13 to 26. So it it is an unpleasant word, (laughs) to say the least, that Amos has for the people of the northern kingdom concerning the Lord's judgment against them and how this is all going to work out in the end. He says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake. And the capitals would be above the thresholds, right? And so it's a blow coming down on the capitals over the thresholds, shaking the thresholds of the temple and shatter them on the heads of all the people. There's a sort of a parallel kind of a thing with uh, Samson, actually. If you remember at the end of the Samson story, He's had his eyes gouged out and treated horribly, but his hair has finally grown back out, and so his strength has returned, and he pulls down the um, the thresholds and brings it down, brings down the building on all those who are in it. And so it's that similar kind of idea that's here, strike it from the top and then bring everything down on the heads of all the people who are there in this place. And those who are left of them, I'll kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I'll bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Mount Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. That just seems like such a contrast, some, something that, that can't be. God would fix his eyes on these people for evil and not for good. And, and I guess you could translate it easy, most easily as for uh, destruction and not for blessing would be a way to say it. Um, but it's a, it's a painful thing. It's sort of the reversal of Psalm 139 where David speaks of, no matter where I go to hide from you, you are there. And so he finds that ultimately comforting, but the opposite is true here. Wherever I go to hide, he will find me there, and he will search me out, and he will destroy me. Can you imagine what would be required for God to feel that way about his own people? It, It would take an apostasy beyond anything you could almost imagine to think of God seeking out his own people to destroy them in this way. Uh, the Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, 
who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. So you, you want to know who it is, who has become your enemy? It's God. It's the one who created all things. He says, are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Capthor and the Syrians from Kir? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom. And I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. He always leaves a remnant behind. It, but the the reality is, is that we who, who take the name of Christ, those who consider themselves God's own treasured possession, have a responsibility because we've been given the sacred deposit of truth. And that sacred deposit of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, cannot be diminished in the eyes of the world. And, and those who take the name of God can't take it in vain. And that's exactly what he says way back in the Ten Commandments. And in, in this, the, what, what taking it in vain would be, you know, most of the time growing up, I, I understood that to mean that there, there was curse. It was, it was a curse, you know, a, a word, a curse is what I mean by that. Um, but now, you know, I, I understand this in a different way. Certainly that's wrong, <laughs> to say that word, but the the other side of it is is that, that taking the name of the Lord in vain is to take it without meaning it. It's to take it in order to win favor in some shape, form, or fashion, um, and not to fulfill the obligation to make his name known and to make his righteousness known. And so when his people fail to make him known, when they do so in such a way that actually brings dishonor on him, when, when they do it falsely, then they've taken the name of the Lord in vain. We hope to get the blessing and the benefit without having any other responsibility. That's probably the easiest definition of what does it mean to take the name of the Lord in vain. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say disaster shall never overtake or meet us. They were content in their prosperity in the time of Amos. There, there was no reason for them to believe or fear God's judgment. It looked for all the world like he was blessing them at that time. And yet here comes this prophet from the south who people could have looked at and said, well, he's got an axe to grind because he's a southerner and he doesn't like the way things are up here. And so he's come here to give a prophetic word, quote unquote, against us. And his response, Amos's response was, this isn't about me. <laughs> this is about God's anger towards you. It looks like you're blessed. It looks like you have everything. But you don't have him. And in fact, you're about to pay the price for your apostasy. And it's sort of the theme of the, the letters of Revelation are that very thing. And, and as I've said, this judgment begins at the house of God. So the judgment that's meted out in, in the book of the Revelation comes first to the seven churches up in Asia Minor, which are sort of north and east of um, the Holy Land. And so... That announcement of judgment comes against God's people first and then comes out for the world. And it's the same here. And so God's going to most harshly judge his people because they're the ones who have been so blessed and have a responsibility for making him known in all the world. In the gospel passage today, that's exactly what Jesus says is the problem. 
It's the judgment here against the leadership of the people, these uh, false shepherds who have led the people. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And a hypocrite is somebody who wears a mask. So they're not what they seem to be. They're simply putting on a mask and playing a role for public consumption. He says, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So their teaching is false in the sense that it's, it's not that it's just legalism. That's part of the problem, certainly. But, but there's more to it than that, even. It's, it's a legalism that, that, is, um, that, that acts as though that's all there is. I mean, there's no question that law matters, um, justice matters, righteousness matters, all of those things matter, but you can't have a world just of strict justice. That, that it's, it's a world that won't survive because it's a world filled with sin. And so when they do this, what they do is they, they, they have made them slaves to a legal system. And that's all they've given them. They've given them religion. They've given them a set of rules to follow. Well, the problem is then when you become the rules follower person, and that's what you believe religion is, and that's what you believe uh, either Christianity or Judaism is, then, then you have um, failed completely to understand the story, to, to follow the thread at all. You've lost the thread entirely if that's what you think this is about. He says, Woe to you blind guides who say if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? It seems like an easy sort of a thing, and it's something you couldn't get wrong, but Obviously, they did. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on the altar, he's bound by the oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on that throne. It, it seems axiomatic and simple. I have no earthly idea how you'd get this one wrong. I, I really don't. It's, it's confusing to me to read that and think, how did they misunderstand in this way that the most important thing was the temple because it was God's dwelling place? So the temple itself was the holy thing, and then everything else was made holy or sacred simply because it was part of the temple goes on to say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. This is the most important thing that he's saying here to these people, and that is that you, you're trying to do these little things, these, these little legalistic things, that you do right to do those things. And he goes ahead and says that, these you ought to have done, these tithing things— without neglecting the others. You blind guide straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So what he's telling them is, is that you've majored in the minors, that you've, you've done essentially the easy things. So this tithing thing, he says, that, that's easy to do. 
it's really not easy at all to do justice and mercy and faithfulness, because it requires something of you that's different from just giving up your stuff. No, it requires you to extend yourself on behalf of others and on behalf of the Lord in order to do these things. It, those things are far more important, he says, than that. And so what the other things that he kind of criticizes them for are those people who have said, well, I would give you, my mother and father, I would give you this, except the problem is is that, that I've, I've already commuted this to the Lord, and so I can't give it to you. It's not available for you. And, and Jesus had said earlier, you got this backwards. And, and I think that's the the reality is, is that, that they have everything backwards. They're missing the relational part of the whole thing. Instead, they've made it into this, this little thing that they do. So it's these habits and these laws that they've become expert in, but they fail to understand anything about the law itself, what's intention, what his intention is, and completely fail to understand the lawgiver. They are the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. And he ends up, this part, today's readings with, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the outside, inside of the cup and the plate, and then that the outside may also be clean. And it's a point that he's made multiple times in saying that, that your problem is your whitewashed tombs. For instance, you know, it, you look great on the outside, but inside you're full of, of horrible things. And so consistently again and again and again, Jesus has said it's the sinful stuff is the stuff that comes out. I had a friend whose father talked about the 23rd Psalm and said, my, my cup runneth over. And his question is, but with what? What is it that runs over when your cup gets bumped? Is it ugly or, or is it pure? And so that's a big issue, is what's actually going on inside, because we can be great little legalists and despise it all the time, and certainly despise people who are not as legally righteous as we are. We can despise other people's freedom, and that was the big problem in the early church, was was how much freedom do these Christians have? In the... um, epistle in the book of Revelation today, the angel of the Lord in Smyrna write, angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, parentheses, but you're rich. It doesn't seem that way to you. You're going through difficulty and you're poor, but you're actually rich, if you could see it from my perspective. And the slander of those who say that they're Jews and they're not, but they're the synagogue of Satan. So he's mixing the church and the synagogue all in one thing. He's saying, and it's probably these people who are trying to make them legalists on the one hand, but then there's also, as we're going to see in a minute, there's all these these other people who who could be a problem in Pergamum, which it was also in Ephesus, of these people who, who wanted license. But the synagogue of Satan probably has more to do with um, the idea of, of Judaizing people and, and converting them to the law, converting them to the religion, not to the relationship. He said, don't fear what you're about to suffer. In other words, this is not my judgment on you, but I'm going to allow this thing to happen, which is you're su- going to be suffering to you. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. 
In other words, persevere. Just It's the same thing that he told his disciples on multiple occasions about persecution, that you're going to be persecuted. Just make yourself mind up in advance that you're not going to prepare for what you're going to say, because at the right time, the Spirit will give you the words to say. And so he prepared them for the tribulation and the suffering that they would go through. And here he's telling them, be prepared for the suffering that's coming. But he's not saying, it's from me. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. So it's not judgment that's bringing, coming down on them. And, but he does say, be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. That's not exactly an encouraging word. I mean, it's encouraging in the sense that you get the crown of life, that you won't pass through the second death. But what's going to be required to get there is to be faithful unto death. And then he closes, as always, with, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And then on to the next letter. Um, and to the church, angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And remember, we saw that earlier, and that's the Word of God. And so the, it, it's the bringing of truth. And that truth will divide everything. So, so we've got to live by truth, which means we've got to allow the Spirit to speak truth to us into our personal and individual situations. Because that's the key. You know, I think one, probably one of the things that I've learned in ministry more than anything else is, is the first work of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. But I think the hardest work of the Holy Spirit is to conv- convict Christians of sin. Because so many of us, it's impossible for the Spirit to convict us of sin because we're convinced of our own righteousness simply because we're in Him. And we, but we continue to live lives that to the outside world certainly don't portray Him in the way that we would prefer to. And it's the reason that the world calls us hypocrites. We pretend to be this, but they know we're really this. So he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And there was an altar of Zeus in Pergamum, and, and we think that that's exactly what he's talking about when he says where the Satan's throne is. It's not there anymore. In 1901, it was moved, and it was moved to Berlin, and it's been in Germany ever since then. Um, the architect of the Third Reich, Albert Speer, uh, used that altar for inspiration for the place where you always see Hitler speaking, where he comes down the steps, stands, gives the Nazi salute, and begins to speak to the assembled masses in the crowd below. The inspiration for that was actually Satan's throne. It's what they called it, was Satan's throne, but it was the altar of Zeus that was in Pergamum. There were a great many altars to things in uh, Pergamum itself. It was a center of worship for the empire and, and worship of all kinds of things. It was also a healing place, but that healing place was also another demonic kind of an em- entity. It was Asclepius is what it was called, um, where the healing thing was. And But it, it, it was a terrible place. Pergamum was a terrible place. Um, he said, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And so Antipas was a man who had been raised up by John to be the head of the church there in Pergamum and was made a bishop there, who was put to death by being boiled to death in a basin that looked like a bull, which would have been part of Baal worship in the area. And so he was um, killed by being boiled alive in a bronze kettle that resembled a bull, which would have been a pagan altar, essentially. 
He said, he said I know all these things that you, you held fast even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to putting stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And remember, I told you who they were. They were that was Nicholas of Antioch, who had become he was a proselyte, who became a Christian, who became a deacon, who then seemingly went over and began to teach stuff that was way more associated with Baal than it was with um, Christianity, and it taught essentially that the body was an immaterial thing, that since it didn't, it was going to be recreated in the new creation, that it that it was immaterial in this world, it didn't matter, but which is exactly the opposite. Paul says that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so here they, they've been taught in some of these places, they put up with it, is what he's saying. You put up with the teaching that says that that's a lie and that you can do anything in the body and not harm the soul at all. He said, therefore, repent. If not, I'll come to you soon and war with them, <clears throat> against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So it's the perseverance in righteousness. We've always got to recall whose we are and whose we are, and our main job is to make him known, and we need to make him known in truth and in spirit. And that's the main issue, is we can't lose the thread. We've got to remember God's holiness. We've got to remember he's just, but we also have to remember things like mercy and faithfulness and love. All those things have to be held together in intention. We can't throw some of those things out and just preach the other things. We have to preach the entire counsel of God, not just the bits that we find most um, exciting. We can't just teach grace because we also have to teach teach justice and judgment. We can't just teach judgment because there's grace and mercy and love. So we, we've got to, to hold all those things in tension all the time, or we're not faithfully speaking of him.